everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. On today's show, I am speaking with Laura Lee Abbey, the writer behind the podcast, 17 Conversations with My Teenage Self. Maybe that's a harrowing thought for you, but you should go check it out anyway. And in the spirit of teenage nostalgia and drama and hopefully some misty watercolored memories too, we are going to talk about the girls of the 1990s classic and a little bit about the women of it too, now and then. I'm Arlene Kingstans, where you at? And then later on, I will have one quick thing before I go because the movie X is now playing in theaters. We are a week into its run, and I would like to encourage you to go see it. But for now, I hope you are ready for a trip down memory lane. Let's get to my conversation with Laura. My co-host for this episode is an essayist, a memoirist, a writer. You may have seen her work in publications such as Vice, such as the Washington Post, such as many other places, honestly. It's quite the litany of bylines. And you might know her from her podcast, perhaps, uh, 17 Conversations with My Teenage Self. Laura Lee Abbey, is that a sufficient introduction? Is there anything else we need to know about you before we get started? I don't know. You made me sound pretty awesome, so I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We like to get people started off on the best foot possible. Perfect. And Laura, what movie have you brought for us, movie and character or characters, have you brought for us to discuss today? I want to talk about Now and Then, Coming of Age, Nostalgia. Um, Yeah, I want to talk about Now and Then. And I I think I kind of want to talk about all four of the characters Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a little bit. And then I'll admit the one that I most like is the one that I think was my least favorite. That's how life goes. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah that that really is a how life goes situation. That's like when you when you start seeing your parents and yourself uh-huh. and you're like this was inevitable, wasn't Everything it? Everything I hate about you is exactly who I am now. This yeah. is inevitable, wasn't it? Thomas Wolfe once said, "You can't go home again." Well, that's great for old Tom. But he wasn't a chick who made a pact with her friends when she was 12 to get together whenever any one of them needed each other. So here I am driving back to my childhood home in Indiana. A place I can tell you I never wanted to see again. Uh, I guess a promise is a promise. I'm I'm 36, so this was I I will say I will go so pre so presumptuous as to say this was obviously a formative movie for me when I was growing up. This movie uh, stars what an ensemble! What an ensemble! This is fucking feel good Yellow Jackets, ladies and gentlemen. And truly, you could see uh, half this cast in season two of Yellow Jackets <laughs> if considering how Gen X icon casting of uh, that show works. Uh, you have the older versions of a group of friends that are coming back together in their Indiana hometown on the occasion of one of those four women giving birth. It's the fastest labor and delivery ever. <laughs> it is smooth. Rita Wilson is having this baby. And it's coming Rosie now. O'Donnell's character is the best OBGYN that has ever existed. She's Debbie Moore said, get it out of her, get it out of her. And Rosie O'Donnell said, say no more. Oh, I And she got that baby out of her. She got it out of her. And it is these grown friends coming together. And as they are reconvening for the first time, it seems like in kind of many years. Yeah. um, We are cutting back to the the bulk of the movie actually takes place in their past. And I think it's the summer of 1970 when they are sort of at their closest and on the threshold of becoming 
individuals really apart from one another for the first time. The summer of 1970 started out like any other summer. School ended and we had three months of freedom ahead of us. But that year, freedom wasn't enough. We wanted independence, a place to call our own. That's why we decided to buy the treehouse, and the quest to earn the money was our summer goal. It is an incredibly touching and wonderful and emotional film, and I love Now and Then so much. So much. And I, I'm the same age as you are. I'm 36, so it just like got us right at that perfect age of like <laughs> yeah. still riding our bikes, but yeah. you know, right on the precipice of like puberty and becoming teenagers. So mm-hmm. it, I feel like women of our age are, are like, yeah, I get it. Was Now and Then a like Right when the, right, maybe it was in theaters that you saw it. Maybe it was right when the VHS came out. When did you experience Now and Then for the first time? I I don't know if I saw it in theaters, but it was like we rented the VHS every single weekend sleepovers, <laughs> like me and my best friend. Like we just watched it nonstop. We, you know, got the CD, probably started off with a tape of the soundtrack. Yeah. It's so effing good. That's one of the best <laughs> parts about it. Um, so it was just nonstop nonstop watching that movie, especially I think the summer after like fifth or sixth grade. It was such a good summer sleepover movie. (laughs) It's so interesting. A movie like this where like it is it is nostalgia and it is it is at once so in the middle of those feelings of of youthful restlessness and like you said and coming of age of becoming but also it's told from the point of view of characters looking back at their lives and so it you know functions in that pixar way where it's very much as much for the adults as it is for the kids yeah when what the what is the initial impact of this watch when you're just in the thick of it you are one of those kids and you're not like ah yes reflecting on my time as an adolescent but you are that adolescent like how did that feel why was it every weekend I think somehow this movie does this magical thing where even at like 11 years old, it gave me this nostalgia for Mm -hmm. this childhood that wasn't even mine. And so now I have nostalgia for the movie that almost first introed this fake nostalgia. It feels very (laughs) meta, all of it. But yeah, it just felt like the friendships. I, I was so right in that zone of like leaving that morning on my bike with my friends and just coming home when it got dark out and riding everywhere. And you had this own little world of yours that the grownups didn't really know about, but we were kind of in tune to what the grownups were doing and, you know, judging all of it and feeling, (laughs) feeling so dramatic in our little lives. And, um, but there was this freedom, but this youthful freedom where it was still really innocent. I totally get what you mean about this, the idea of being nostalgic for a childhood I didn't have. And like, like, not like I had a fun childhood, like, you know, my parents' marriage was fucked up and all the, you know, usual suspects kind of issues, etc. But like that, like I had a good, happy childhood and there was like the running around the neighborhood and, you know, kids on bikes and playing, playing with, you know, Sean, the neighbor boys down the street. Because right. I always like got along very well with the little boys and played like little boys did. But then there was like, I didn't and I, can't, I grew up in a small town, but I didn't have that like that really Americana small town, like what is this, Shelby, Indiana. Yeah. Like let's bike 15 miles to the town over to go to that library. Right. Like Illinois, Indiana, that like Midwest American small town summer where I watch that and I'm like, American dream, man. Just yes. the American dream, these little kids riding around. Yeah. And it just feels so good to like surrogate experience that when I watch this movie. Yes. Yeah. So you said, like, you know, obviously the character that, like, maybe perhaps on early watches, you were like, I don't like her. That's not that. Mm, that's not mine. And then you were like, well, it turns out that's who yeah. I am. Yeah. Who Who is the character? Which character is that? 
Samantha. Samantha. So you're, but you're that makes you the that makes you the cool one. That makes you like I thought the Roberta cool writer was the cool girl. one. I wanted I wanted to be a Roberta, like effortlessly cool, kind of like the tomboy. But all the boys thought she was pretty. Like that's who <laughs> you know. What in my youth, that's what I wanted to be because I was not mm-hmm. effortlessly anything. Um, <laughs> and you know, Sam was like, she was so jaded, and I kind of mm-hmm. hated that about her. But that also. I find that in myself that she's pragmatic, but she got this like little bit of an angsty vibe, you know, like, mm-hmm. you can't fool me. Um, <laughs> you can't. No one's put one over on Sam and no one's put one over on Gabby Hoffman either. No, no. one's put one over on Gabby Never. Hoffman. No, absolutely not. But I did, I did get into Wicca as a teen. So now I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know what? I really, I had a lot of that Samantha in me. Dear Johnny, can you hear me? If you can hear me, give us a sign. Let us know. It's okay. We just want to talk to you. Tell us how you died. I, everything is queer to me now. I'll be like, oh, well, I'm headcanoning that. And like, that's the joy of watching everything as a queer person is being like, oh, that's so gay. And (laughs) I watch this movie now and I'm like, wow, that's gay. That thing's gay. There's so much gay here. But at the time, like, I wasn't calibrating it on sort of any level relating to sexuality when I was watching it particularly like with the presence of like a Gabby Hoffman and a Rosie O'Donnell. And the least believable thing about this movie is that Roberta is straight in any timeline. Oh my God. Did you read, did you read that (laughs) interview with Rosie? If you, or not, was an interview with Rosie? No, it was an interview with the writer, how she, Roberta was supposed to be gay. The (laughs) test audiences in middle America were not going for it. So they had to mention her boyfriend. At the end. I mean, the fact that there is a line of dialogue in this movie that's where Chrissy says Roberta's living a quote alternative, alternative. <laughs> lifestyle. And then I was I, for a second, I like took it to a conclusion. I was like, wait, they didn't let her be a lesbian in this. And then she says, because she quote lives in sin with her, with boyfriend. her boyfriend. Roberta, for example, has chosen to be alternative. <laughs> She lives in sin with her boyfriend, but she's still normal. Yes, I'm normal. I was like, this movie just walked backwards about 15,000 miles to make you not worried that Rosie O'Donnell is gay. Like, why couldn't they maybe just not mention it? It was just don't mention putting the line in was so like, we're going to just hit this nail on the fucking head. I mean, and just, yes, the the queerness of, of watching it now is such an added, you know, joy of getting older and being able to read my own way. But was there any of that when you were watching, do you feel like, that came through in that way that queer people can, like, read the frequencies between the lines? I don't know if I saw it back then, because I don't even think I really had a handle I didn't. on I didn't. what queerness was. I think... Mm-hmm. Maybe this is me looking back or, or you know, having rewatched it so many times at, over the years as I grew up. But I think it was always very clear, like, OK, adult Roberta is a big old lesbian. Um, <laughs> but I, I certainly did not see that, you know, on my early watches. Yeah, I cannot purport to that is not me saying that, like, the the the, the feelers were out and I was picking up on anything. But I was just wondering if you had maybe if you had maybe been more advanced in your perceptions than I was. At oh, that age. I was. Nobody would ever call me advanced. Not, not <laughs> certainly not about queerness. <laughs> we all used to try so hard to fit in. We wanted to look exactly alike, do all the same things, practically be the same people. And when we weren't looking, that changed. The way that this movie moves in its narrative arc, like, it even calls out that, like, 
you know, the last thing I wanted to be was different from my friends. And then by the end of the movie, we have Sam's character, our POV character, saying, like, the treehouse that they're trying to save up money for that they want to get to have their own little retreat. Like, the treehouse was supposed to provide them independence from everybody else. But what ended up happening by the end of the summer was they gained a kind of independence from, they built a kind of independence from each other. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to hear about sort of, like, that melding of watching this and seeing like seeing bits of yourself in kind of each of them and, and having that sort of like composite structure in front of you of like, oh my God, girlhood. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, there was a lot of that, you know, that Sam feeling older than I was, but there was mm-hmm. also kind of like that naive side of me. And I mean, Chrissy certainly took it to a whole other level. Um <laughs> Bonnie Hunt in a small but tour de force Canopy appearance. Canopy down. I just love that. I mean, so quite the tour de force appearance. Yeah. Incredible. Uh oh, canopy up, canopy down. Is that the right way? You know what, Chrissy? I've been thinking about what you ask me. About sex. Yes, dear. <laughs> you say that very casually. It's very scary for mommy. So her kind of like a goody goody behavior, but you know, and you see how so much of that is just coming from her mom and from her parents and how she doesn't necessarily want, you know, she feels like an idiot. She's like, you all know things that I don't know. Yeah. You know? And then just the Roberta part of not being comfortable with her, her changing body. And I was, a, yes. I was an early bloomer in terms of like puberty, like boobs, very young. And so like, that is I, tough. I, that I is so, a tough road to hoe. Yeah. And I just connected to that feeling of like, what do I do with these? Like, I yeah. just want to go ride bikes with the boys and <laughs> everything's changing and they're changing and I'm changing. And um, teeny, I feel like I had probably the least in common with. Um, yeah. Teeny, I would have the least in common with, but would definitely I love I love high maintenance and I high, high maintenance compliments me very well. I have a lot of energy for people. So yeah. the teeny in the group would probably be the one that I committed the most my, of my emotional energy I have, to. You know, shout out to my best friend from college. She's such a teeny, like gorgeous movie, star looks, like <laughs> just like loves that. And so, yeah, I love a teeny. Um, <laughs> but she's not me, but I do love a teeny. I think this is I mean, obviously, this is all very germane to the podcast that you have conversations with my teenage self. Tell me about that. What is the premise of that podcast? And what, what are you doing on that each episode? Because you're you're basically being Sam. You're, cr- you're diarying your way yes. through your memories and processing them for us. You are our now and then narrator. Ipso facto, I am Demi Moore. So there it is. You, <laughs> there it is. You said it first. <laughs> you're like, no, I, I didn't. did. Tell me <laughs> about coming it. to that idea <laughs> and wanting to revisit yourself and your life in that way. Yeah. So I've kept journals my whole life and sometimes I've popped back into them and it had just been so, so long since I really went back into my high school journals because mm-hmm. you kind of reach a point in your life where you're like, why would I do that? <laughs> but then in actually going back through them, you know, you think of that time, you know, I'm almost 20 years removed from from that last year of high school now. And so I think about that time with this fondness, but I also remember, okay, you were insecure, but mm-hmm. you were having so much fun with your friends. 
And then going back through them and just realizing like what it was really like and, mm-hmm. and the things I wasn't telling people, I had like no communication skills whatsoever. Like I had all right. my, my best friends and we were so close, but you just, there was so much that I kept so close to my chest and that was really mm-hmm. what my journals were for. And so it was kind of this freeing thing to be like, well, what if I just... So were you a pretty heavy journaler? Like you're, are you drawing from like a pretty thick supply of journal entries here? Yes. I, okay. I, I wrote in my journal almost every day back then. Um, wow. So yeah, so obviously I picked the most interesting stuff because not every day of high school is very is fascinating. <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, I mean, and that particular year was a big year. So I mean, in the, and then, in, so I'm going back through the journals in the podcast and um, a young actor, Leah Emanuel, is, she's, she was actually 17 when we recorded. So she was reading wow. the journals. And then I'm going back in and I mean, I have, I talked to my mom about stuff she wouldn't talk to me about when I was 17, sex right. and and um, we had a death in the family when I was young and her, my father and her just didn't know how to talk to us about that. And I was like, why, why didn't you? She's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. We were baby boomers. We didn't talk about that shit when we grew up. Right. You know, so I talked to a boy that I had very intense feelings for that I completely forgot about until I opened these journals. And so I interview him on the podcast and I, you know, tell Whoa. him, I read him the journals. Wow. That feels like it's either going to like unleash a demon or it's going to like neutralize a demon and send it back into the next dimension. It was like so intense and and such a great, I think it's probably my favorite episode um, is just talking to him and and coming clean about all this stuff that I was too scared to to say back then, you know? Yeah. Um, So it was quite the journey. I feel like there's this like and I, I had a very good high school experience. I, I loved my high school experience. I was very fortunate. I had a very good adolescence. But they're like, I'm very grateful at this exact threshold in life to where it seems like an appraisal of our teen years, like there's enough distance from it and hopefully we have formed enough after it to where those recollections can, they can be warm where maybe they, they previously weren't so mm-hmm. much. And they can also like, be valued for what they are, even if they're hurtful and and processed and sort of reevaluated in yes. ways that like it feels like there's enough distance at this sort of exact age it's beginning to happen to be like it's not gonna it's not gonna re-traumatize me to go back through those right. journals again. Yes, that's why I think I was able to do it because I was like the insecure girl I was back then. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of her in me, but insecurity yeah. is no longer my issue. At some point, I learned like a gross amount of confidence. I should probably just get rid of some. But girl, me and you, you both, me and you both, hundred <laughs> percent. You know, that's what we need. And also, imposter syndrome. I never met her, so like, <laughs> fuck her. Absolutely not. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you know, also like I was 17 in the early two. I mean, so were you in the early 2000s, which going back in these journals and really just taking kind of the podcast really, you know, looks at that time and the movies and the pop culture and it was fucked up. I'm listen, I feel like every generation is like my adolescence was the most X whatever, but truly for real, the combination of media saturation and like post 9-11 politics and like and so many things about like the burgeoning internet combined with more media and entertainment and infotainment than ever before we had a fucked up adolescence yes, laura we did there was so much coming at us all the time telling us to be completely different things than like they were purportedly purportedly mm-hmm. telling us to be. Yes. Tell me about the odds. Tell me what you I need I have you here. Tell me give me your capsule feelings about being 
an adolescent in the aughts and that like late 90s millennium era period. Yeah, it it was this time of and I was recently talking to someone else about this. It was this time of like the cool girl, right? Like she was sex positive, but it was all actually an act for the men because yes! women were not really feeling that or expected to feel that. So it mm-hmm. was raunchy movies and there was so much like it was really rapey like the the movies we were watching yeah. like you know just sexually explicit whipped cream bikinis guys mm-hmm. getting girls drunk like yep you know american pie made you know how many fucking movies did american pie make so many and they did so, so many. well and i'm like you you rewatch that and you're like oh my god this is so inappropriate and yeah the just, I look back, I'm like, poor Britney Spears, like, duh, of course she ended up, like, where she is now, because it was just, the attack was always on the females, right? Like, you yeah. have to be virginal, but you have to be sexy, and you have to wear these low-rise That's pants right. that basically, like, showcase your vagina, but you still have to be a virgin, like we said, mm-hmm. and are mm-hmm. your boobs real? What's going on with those? God forbid Are your boobs you- real? Let's do a whole article about a newly 18-year-old girl and whether or not her and boobs her are real and boobs. call it the cover story of Rolling Stone like in the early any, 2000s. Like it's anyone's business. There is this angel whore binary that is so incredibly boot like so incredibly juiced up and disseminated out in the 2000s where you have like celebrity blog culture is rising so you have like the whole Perez mm-hmm, Hilton mm-hmm. 1.0 iteration of like delisted the superficial the complete toxification of conversation around any famous female figure and that attitude is creeping its way just from internet blogs into blue chip publications you have articles from publications like rolling stone even in new york times magazine that sound more like the tone pioneered by publications like fhm and maxim at the time right that take this glib misogyny that we're all supposed to be in on the joke on and i 100 i ate that shit up I loved those profiles. I was like, this is cutting edge. This is cool. This is funny. And then I look back on it now. I'm like, this is poison. This is like, inject this into my mind and erode it into ash. And it was everything then. Like, that was that was cool. That was the shit when we were kids. Yes. Yeah. I feel like you just nailed it. That is the early 2000s for for females. (laughs) It is such an amazing time to look back on now that we are grown adults and be like, let's do the anthropological work of chronicling that era. We are the historians the world needs. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about like deconditioning yourself. When did you realize you needed to decondition yourself from the odds? Oh, my God. I think it was like a slow trickle over many years Um, because I, you know, I I went to college and I gave up a lot of that, but that we were still kind of living in that time. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you get so engrossed in your college life and most of us didn't even have a TV. So you you're you're still on the pulse of pop culture, but not not quite like you are in high school, I feel like. Right. So, yeah, kind of went off to do my own thing there. And then I that's when I ended up meeting my now wife. So I kind of that meeting her and falling for her kind of snowballed into this like interest in queer culture and mm-hmm. brought started to bring me away from, from and as i understand it from what i've read sorority sister is yes. the origin story great that's we, our we love origin to see story it. yes yes <laughs> yeah i know um may I, may I ask how that was in the 2000s like was that did you feel like that was a minefield to navigate at the time or did you have an okay entry into that part of your life and that kind of self-acceptance. Minefield. 
yeah bombs going off left and right like absolute Mm -hmm. horror for me and you know you look back and you're like you were so dramatic but it it felt so like my whole life was crumbling what's what is happening yeah it was hard it was really really hard well and at that time too like we're a will and grace pop culture landscape like ellen's come out and we dealt with it but also like it's it's a homo nationalist era presided over by george bush saying that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married and campaigning on that as a as a stump issue yes and so there is this incredibly dissonant cacophony of messaging that comes from that time that says women's sexual liberation is good and empowerment is good but only on a set of very prescribed terms and also the prevailing like political norms of the day are telling you to be closeted and queer is not a part of the conversation it's gay and lesbian and that's it that's actual people say they maybe still don't exist right and like queer is just that's that's for activists nobody's queer nobody's unless you're crazy it was gay or straight nothing in between and that Mm -hmm. was you were defined by one and if if you were defined by gay that was everything that was your your bold header you know yeah. that was who you are and so that was the really i think about it now i'm like young people there's so much nuance there's so many words half of which i don't even know for them to describe their gender or sexuality and i'm so happy for them that's the world <laughs> i want to live in but that is not the world that i came out in so it was it was like, do I, am I ready to define myself as a lesbian? Because I don't think that's what I am. But at right. no, you know, at no point did it occur to me like, you, no, that's not what you have to be. Because that wasn't a possibility. No, it wasn't. And it's it's so like, you know, the, the now and then of it all, like that Roberta was supposed to be a queer character. Roberta was supposed to be gay. And that like, we're not ready in 1996 to be like, hey, Rosie O'Donnell, this character's a lesbian. And then maybe 10 years later, you're in college and you're like, I'm in love with this girl in my sorority, but I still, like, we have allegedly gone farther, but this is still a minefield for me. And yet the chasm between that period, the, like, almost sort of purity of the 90s, I don't know, something allegedly closer to innocence compared right. to, like, the freak fuck 2000s, like, ni- 1996 now and then feels like the most charming damn movie you could watch, and then we're in, like, the cool homophobia and like dismember people era of the 2000s just a few years later yeah it's a lot to handle but you know what another thing i would have loved about roberta being gay in the end is the fact that she had that sweet first kiss with a boy that that invites some of the nuance of like progression and people changing and she like she clearly had these feelings for i think it was scott wormer yeah and, and still could end up growing up to be, a, a, as we can say, a queer woman. Yeah. I would have liked to see that because it would have puzzled a lot of people because so many people still are like, but she kissed a boy when she but was she, 12. Yeah. Take her gold star away. <laughs> she kissed a boy when she was 12. Not a gold star. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it it's an interesting thing to watch now and feel like, feel a sort of, like, there is a kind of perfection in its, in the way that the girls relate to each other. Like, it is... That feels so sincere and it feels so true. And like, I see this unit of kids and I still look at them and I'm like, that's fucking aspirational, man. Like, it is it is amazing how much harder it is to be friends as adults with people because just life so much life is happening. And I watch this and I look at now and then I'm like, oh, man, it was so cool being friends as kids like Kid friendships are the best. You would spend all day together and then tie up the landline for hours <laughs> yeah. to talk. What were we talking about? We had spent the entire day together. What were we talking about? You get home from a sleepover and you immediately call one of those immediately. people. 
It was the best. Yeah, because I that's another thing I love about Now and Then. Oh, there's so much to love. Like, I am still best friends with my group of girlfriends from high school. And we know oh. how lucky we are and how, like, unusual it is. And it's just so amazing. And But I'm like... We now have to really like work out those times. Like so many of us are parents and the jobs and all mm-hmm. of it. And it's just like we now have to really create that time to be together where it just used to – you just used to be bored together. You know, there's no, <laughs> more, there's no more being bored together. You're so right. That is such a like gift of – if you're, you know, you can be a kid among your friends and have that respite to go into, mm-hmm. just the fact of being bored together yeah. feels like such a luxury now. I'm um, an absolute luxury. I would die to be bored with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to take a quick break, but we will be back with much more Now and Then with Laura Lee Abbey. Carrie, is it? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am Psychic Ross, and I will be reading you this evening. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. I co-host a podcast. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Yes, I'm sensing that. The spirits are telling me. It is a show about Well, it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal. Oh, you knew that. You do research online. But more importantly, like we do in-person investigations. In-person investigate as well. Oh, my God. That's amazing. See? Me and my friend. This is so weird. My friend Ross. Same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. Schmanners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and I'm talking to essayist and podcaster Laura Lee Abbey about the new movie, Now and Then, and about how it hits us differently now than it did then. hey Let's get right back to it. It's another thing about growing up with this movie and, like, watching it when you're older. Like, I remember watching it when I was little and seeing, like, when they come back together and then they're, like, in the treehouse and at the end and and they're talking about, like, you know, we should get together more often kind of thing. I remember watching it when I was younger and being like, why don't – like, why didn't they? Like, that's crazy. That – that doesn't make sense. And and just sort of being baffled by, like, but you're best friends. Like, what do you mean you don't see each other all the time? And watching it now and, like – I almost get teary. I get teary in that scene in the treehouse, being aware of what, of how easy it is to separate from these people that are like your entire life. And I watch it and I'm just like, 
oh my God, like, <laughs> why don't we is, get together more often? Yeah, like, how, how is that, how is, how is, like, how are the grown-up scenes for you when you watch this movie now? You know what's funny? So my wife and I are, um, she's our age, so we're both obsessed with Now and Then, and she, her mom actually took her to see it in theaters, and she's like, oh. she's like, in the beginning, I was like, why the hell would you take me to see this? It's a bunch of grown women, and her mom was like, just wait. And I, <laughs> I don't remember that, like, part of of being young. I don't remember having any issue with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe because I knew it was coming. But yeah, watching it now, I I kind I I love that part because that's the part I relate to now is right. like coming back together and telling those stories and reliving the past together in a really fun way knowing what the future is and I also think about what I think could have been changed with like how they were when they were mm-hmm. older and and what I think was accurate and <laughs> yeah I a, a a a detail about this movie and it just this was this was this is a lie told to us by media i feel like for a very long time but i definitely remember watching movies when i was a teenager when i was this like tween age and like the idea of like because there's the conversation they're doing truth or dare in the treehouse at the end roberta truth or dare truth just how big are your boobs now well just how big are your boobs 36 <laughs> d been worth every penny <laughs> D. Oh no. Worth every penny. Yes. Worth every penny. And Rosie O'Donnell remarks like D. Oh, who knew? And it's like the lie that was told to to children about what the the idea of thirty six D boobs when we were little was like it was almost like this scandalous kind mm-hmm. of moniker, kind of designation. Like what that indicated, there was like an an implication to say something like that that almost like implied a promiscuity like I you know said that you said that you were an early developer and I remember the first girl who hit puberty in like I think it was my fifth grade class and that poor girl I can't imagine like I remember going to school and everybody had an opinion about about her developing early and that she was a slut absolutely oh yeah at that that age once you have boobs you're a slut and it is fascinating just that how laden with misogyny the terms of our upbringing are, hopefully were, more were yeah. than are, were just like the fact of your body's developmental existence deemed you worthy of being adult sexualized yeah. and and classified as a sl- in the fifth grade, for example. Yeah. I actually talk about that. I talk about the word slut a lot in my podcast because that was such a big word back then. And I mean, the first time I was called a slut, I was in the fifth grade. I didn't, I mean, I had done, obviously done nothing <laughs> to, to serve it. Yeah. The just, yeah, female bodies where we're just living for the male gaze. Well, and, it, and it, it's, you know, you watch Roberta in the beginning of, of this movie, young Roberta in the beginning of this movie. And obviously like, it's her mom has died. She doesn't have any sort of guiding her through this. Right. And she's got the three brothers, but like she's binding in the morning. Like she's taping her she chest. She is full down. on binding. Yeah. She is re- queer Roberta is binding queer in the Roberta. beginning of this movie. And it's if you don't know what to do with it and you know that the existence of this, you start realizing the existence of this is going to invite an attention you don't want or you're, not, you're ready not ready for. for. And it is fascinating to. Watch this now and and see so many more of the layers of a girl feeling like she has to mask her body in order to 
exist in the world less encumbered than she would if she just had her t-shirt on with like herself developing walking around without a care in the world right yeah because i mean again as i said i developed early and i remember i think in sixth grade a boy telling me well me me and the other boys made a list of the girls with the biggest boobs in the class and you're on it and then like i was still at the age where i was still riding bikes with like my friends and my friends were girls and boys and i didn't want to deal with any of that i remember not and i got my period at 11 years old and i remember not even telling my mom because i i knew she was going to make a thing out of it and i yeah. just you know tried to use tampons wrong for for a long time by myself <laughs> oh, no but i was just like i'm not I wasn't ready to deal with all of that. So I completely, yeah, I I think that part of Roberta at the time I was going through that and maybe I didn't, you know, make the connection as clearly back then, but it was like I wasn't taping my boobs, but it it felt like almost I should have been because the attention was so unwanted and and I was ill prepared for. I mean, are we ever prepared to just become um to be objectified in that way? Roberta, why can't you just act like a girl? You know, a thing I had never clocked until watching it this time, like it comes up the credit roll at the beginning and it's like written by I, Marlene King. And my favorite show of all time is Pretty Little Liars. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Holy shit. I, Marlene King, is I, Marlene King, the definitive architect of female friendships in my uh, media-consuming <laughs> life from when I was 11 to when I was in my 20s? Are you serious? I think the answer is yes. Watching this again and knowing it was I, Marlene King, I was so taken aback by how good I, Marlene King is about, particularly a friendship love story involving a group of four girls. Yeah. And I was so happy to really appreciate the value of a friendship love story when it doesn't, there's more of an emphasis on that now and telling different kinds of story, love stories about different kinds of intimacy. But like, that's not a conversation we've been having for more than 20 minutes. Mm -mm. And it's just so important to be able to see those kinds of intimate connections on screen. Like, amidst all the misogyny and the objectification, you just see these girls biking around and singing songs together. And it is just the most like validating, enlivening thing to see for me, even still now. Yes, agreed. And then like even the friendships within the friendships, like Mm -hmm. the way they could branch off and, you know, okay, these two are going to tell each other this. And and the way they would call each other out, like, you know, we were talking about Chrissy being a a goody-goody. And I think she's the one who slapped Roberta across the face when she She fully punches her. Like, ball fist punches her across the face. She's got an edge to her, you know. But it's like, this is what I'm willing to put up with from you because we are best friends. And if you're going to pull that, I'm going to hit you. You know, I'm like, (laughs) this is like a no hold barred, like no holds barred, like we love each other kind of friendship. Yeah, like the, the deep... The deep friendship. I'm sorry. Roberta, you're my best friend. (laughs) Hey, hell red hook you got there. Roberta, don't swear. I think of now and then in this sort of wonderful era of teen cinema with movies like Can't Hardly Wait and things like that. It's a wonderful era of the teen comedy, Clueless, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 Things I Hate About You. But trying to think of like comparable, just like girl gang, girl friendship stories. Yeah. I don't think I come up with like a ton while I'm trying to process it. I think that's why 
like people our age are so obsessed with it because I don't think it was a big hit either. I mean, I think it's very much like a classic to us now, but um, it was, you know, like the Sandlot. It was a group of boys. Like that's what we had. And I'm not going to tell you I didn't love it because I did. But yeah, Mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of like groups, like female friendship type of movies because yeah, after that, I feel like we started, we graduated to Clueless and all the teen stuff. And yeah, yeah. Even now, anytime I can watch, and this is what Pretty Little Liars did too, anytime I can watch something where the, the central relationship is is like a best friendship or a group friendship between people where like romance can happen, but it's tangential to everything else. Like I love so much that when you start this movie and you're meeting the adults, it is fully presented as like Roberta and Chrissy are living a happy domestic life together. <laughs> Yes. And Chrissy's like nerdy doctor husband shows up to barbecue at some point. But like Chrissy's life companion is Roberta. Yes. Yeah. But she needs that. She needs for, you know, they need each other. Yeah. Like like Morton, I believe, is her husband. Yeah. Name. The dorky kid from. The- yeah. Yes, dear. <laughs> yes, and dear. hello, dear. And he Morton is essential to fulfill Chrissy's heteronormative fantasy of small town life in America. But like. You know, at the end of the day, if she could only pull one person off the train tracks, (laughs) it's not Morton. It's not Morton. We already watched her try to save Roberta's life once in this movie. And it's not going to be Morton's life that she's risking her own for. Mm -hmm. It's going to be Dr. Roberta. The nice as as, you know, Chrissy says when they are making their first pact, she's like, you know, let's make a pact right now. Like, we'll always be there for each other. Like, even if Teeny goes off to Hollywood and I marry a rich doctor, it's like. Who's the rich doctor here? Yeah. Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> I choose to believe that I, Marlene King, understands this and was yeah. like, listen, if I if I can't have my cake, I'm still going to eat it. I'm still going to sneak bites of it behind yeah. everybody's back. Yes. Uh, yes. We could talk about Janine Garofalo in that film because to me, she was clearly... Please talk about Janine Garofalo in this. Yeah, she... As like, the witch, the witch wait- waitress at the Shelby Luncheonette. At the Shelby Luncheonette. She, to me, was, like, blatantly, and again, I didn't have the word queer at the time, but Mm -hmm. she was something Mm -hmm. um, that I found very interesting um, and and offbeat and off-putting but alluring (laughs) all at once in her, like, in her weirdness. Um, I absolutely love her, like, just the small bit she has of approaching on the table. She's like, four black, four black cows, boys. Yes, she just is so hard. It's a short scene, and she's so memorable. Four black cows. It'll be a dollar sixty, boys. Four girls. I know. Like, she just shows up at that table and is like, I'm going to call this group of girls boys. Yeah. Chrissy did not appreciate that. <laughs> no, Roberta, remember you're a lady. <laughs> I like the, I love the tiny ways that this movie honors the interior lives of its kid characters while spending most of its time on the joy, like most of its time overtly on the joy that they feel being together with one right. another. Yeah, and how when you're young, whatever's going on at home, like your friends are your, you're spending most of your time with your friends, more so than your family sometimes. And they're just your everything, you know, regardless of what you're sharing and what you're choosing not to share with them. Like it all kind of comes out eventually. So I will, I will, my my wrap up question to you will be like at, at the beginning of our movie, it, we have a grown Sam mm-hmm. saying like, you know, you can never go home again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then by the end she realizes that there is still a home for her 
and that she can revisit home in a way that it's special to her. You know, I didn't want to come back here. But I'm really glad I did. I'd forgotten how much it helped to have you guys as friends. Have you found, can one never go home again? Or is it possible? If you're making your now and then journal entry as adult Sam, what's the thought on that? Um, I think it's possible. And I think you you have to kind of recreate it in a way that fits your mm-hmm. adult needs. You know, um, yeah, physically, emotionally, one <laughs> can go home again. One can go home again, especially if they have their... Uh, same-sex life mate Roberta bringing groceries home and stocking the fridge. I mean, I need a Roberta. (laughs) All women deserve a wife. All women do deserve a wife, I have to tell you. There there (laughs) have you been. Now, Laura, is there anything you would like to say in signing off? Anything you'd like to direct people to Tell, remind people about your podcast. How can we send you off back uh, post-show? Yes, I'm going to remind you again. You can find me um, at lauraleeabby.com. You can find mm. me on Twitter. Um, mm. I mostly just tweet about how much my kids are exhausting me. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at lauraleeabby. But yeah, please check out um, 17 Conversations with My Teenage Self. Um, it's just all that. Even if even if you're not an early 2000s kid, yeah. it's... It, adolescence is so relatable and coming of age there's a reason there's a million movies about it it's a universal (laughs) experience so we that's what i'm exploring so definitely wherever you get your podcasts check out 17 and you know if you've tuned in for this show about because it was about now and then you are you are telling me that you are somebody who is interested in the idea of confronting having conversations with your teenage self so this feels like a this feels like an intuitive one two step absolutely uh, you like a time capsule that's that's what now and that is doing that's what i'm doing there you go yes yes and as we've established you are samantha you are demi Moore. <laughs> i am demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> there it is there it is there it the is. circle closes <laughs> laura lee abby thank you so much for joining us on the pod today i really appreciate you bringing this wonderful film to the conversation Thank you for chatting about Now and Then with me. I don't, I I feel that I'm talking about it all the time. And so I'm happy to have a real conversation about it. Thanks again to Laura Lee Abbey for joining me for that conversation and for giving me an excuse to rewatch Now and Then. Sincerely, it had been a minute and I was so happy to be back with all of those uh, 90s goddesses. Uh, You can find 17 Conversations with My Teenage Self wherever you get your podcasts. And now I have one more quick thing before I go today. And maybe you'll be surprised to hear that it's not about the movie Deepwater, considering I've done multiple quick things about the movie Deepwater, and it is now available on Hulu. Um, I'm not going to talk about it here because you can actually find me talking about it on Pop Culture Happy Hour. I am making another appearance on there to dig deep into this Adrian line. Uh, I don't know, new classic? New, new strange, strange attraction in his filmography? Uh, for today, though, today's one quick thing is for another new movie. It is for the movie X, which is written, directed, and co-produced by Ty West. Uh, you might know Ty West's works. Uh, he came up... Uh, amidst the sort of like VHS anthology crowd, David Bruckner, Adam Wingard. So if that's why if that's why he sounds familiar to you, well, guess what? He's back. 
with an A24 horror movie. And I have seen it on Twitter. Some people sort of like glibly say, and I don't mind the comparison that like this is the best Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel since uh, Texas Chainsaw 2. And it is not a proper Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel, but it is a Texas horror movie set in 1979 that does find a group of people going to a house that is not their own and finding catastrophe and harrowing uh bloodlusting locals uh, shortly after their arrival. It stars Brittany Snow, my God, in just a star power turn as the adult film actress Bobby Lynn. It stars Mia Goth as the up-and-coming adult film star Maxine. It stars Scott Mascuti, a.k.a. Kid Cudi, as yet another one of our pornographers. And little Jenna Ortega, rising genre queen Jenna Ortega, as the character they call Church Mouse, who's there to do uh, the sound work for this quote-unquote good, dirty movie that these folks are trying to make out in the um, hills of Texas. Well, I just... Here's the thing. We hear a lot, and we've mentioned here on this uh, One Quick Thing segment, people's hunger for uh, more eroticism on screen, more sexuality, more chemistry, more sensuality, more sort of believable sexual charisma that feels like, um, as blockbusters uh, have sort of consumed the mid-budget and indie market, they, there is a sort of antiseptic quality that can permeate the broad landscape of multiplex cinema because it's a lot of things put out by Disney and it's a lot of things related to, super, to superheroes. And there is a sort of nice-washed quality that can be that can affect those films uh, because they're trying to reach the biggest audience possible. Where this movie, I think this movie, to me, X is kind of a perfect sweet spot of modern exploitation cinema done right. I feel like this movie has its cake and eats it too, because we're getting a little bit into, into exploitation, but it also sort of investigates in process, or at least illuminates in process, sort of the the plight of the quote-unquote hag in that villainous role of what happens when a person becomes so socially and physically undesirable that they are left in isolation to sort of go inward and calcify in absence of being desired or being considered a person at all. And then you have also just the pure fun of it. Like, you can check into this movie if you want to consider things like ageism and how we consider uh, bodies on screen, or you can check into it because you want to go see a bunch of hot actors show up to film a porno, and then in process, people start getting picked off in terribly savage ways in blood-soaked tableaus that are gorgeously lit and wonderfully shot uh, by director Ty West and his filmmaking team. It's an A24 movie through and through, you guys. Um, This is... Something that's so exciting to me about sort of the recent wave of neo-exploitation films that I consider um, under the umbrella of movies like Revenge by Coralie Farge, perhaps I know she is reluctant to embrace the logo of uh, the the label of Rape Revenge, but Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, um, the movie MFA, the movie Promising Young Woman, the movie Perfection. We see these films that exist in the tradition of rape and revenge and the B-movie and the grindhouse picture. And largely all of those, almost all of those titles I just listed were are made by women. And that's great. And we love that. We want to see more of that. But what it takes, too, to bring exploitation in the 21st century in a good and sustainable and, and truly meaningful way is to have men making movies that pull off that delicate balance of the fun and the pulp and the blood and the sex and the bodies of these older movies, like 
you know, grindhouse pictures of yore that inspired things like Death Proof and Planet Terror. It is excellent to see a movie made by a gent like Ty West that feels like the women involved were collaborative subjects and not sexual objects. I felt like I, after I watched this movie, there's, as I said, the aforementioned blood and boobs and gore and a fucking crocodile, alligator, what have you, whatever you find in a Texas pond. Um, I get to kind of like have my dirty, sexy, fun time while also walking out of the theater and feeling like all the people involved were co-creators in making this thing, and the exploitation gets to be present in the narrative on screen, while it seems to be like the exploitation was not a part of the narrative off screen in actually making it real and actually existing. Um, Mia Goth is one of my absolute favorite actors, and I love that Ty West looked at her and said she is a goddamn star, and I'm going to put her front and center in my movie. I am so excited to see the little delicate role that Jenna Ortega plays in this and see her ever-expanding uh, genre portfolio. I had a blast at X. I watched it for the second time recently. It is now out wide. You can go see it. It is hard R if you've been looking for, you know, that quote-unquote horror for adults thing that you you maybe feel like hasn't been super satisfied for you lately, particularly by American cinema. Um which can uh, walk a bit in the shadow of the edginess of international products. Get out there and see X. Have a great time. The soundtrack is banging. Good hits in 1979. The cast is phenomenal. You guys, you get a Britney Snow singing intermission in this. You get to see Britney Snow singing, not in Pitch Perfect, making a horror movie. I can't, that Venn diagram is so incredibly amazing with that little center segment where we all get to live so happily in our lives because that is true. Uh, yes, so go see X support bold audacious genre cinema listen to me on pop culture happy hour to support bold audacious choices by anna diarmas and that i will leave you now that is our show for today you can follow us on twitter at feeling scene pod or you can join our facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash feeling scene pod you can also send us an email at feeling scene at maximum if you want to follow me, I'm Jorcrew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.